Welcome to the Peak City Podcast. We're your hosts, Shane Reese, Nick Bryant, Alexis Jensen, Leif Jensen, Amber Keister, and I'm Heather Taylor. And welcome everybody to our series on the history of Apex. Take it away, Holloman Brothers. In our last podcast, Warren, we talked about the Great Fire of 1911, the fire that burned down most of the downtown business district. It was a story about fire, but it was really a story about how the people of Apex responded to the fire as heroes. It happened in the middle of the night. People jumped out of bed and worked like dogs to keep the fire from spreading to the entire town. And after it was over, they didn't just rebuild. They built back better than ever, this time with a material that would never burn again, bricks. Remember, we talked about how the character and identity of Apex was forged in the wake of that fire, and it was all captured in one simple phrase, pluck, perseverance, and paint, which became Apex's first town motto. It was a perfect motto. Those were the three virtues it took to rebuild the town after this devastating tragedy. It took a lot of pluck, a lot of perseverance, and of course, it took a lot of paint. And it also took a lot of bricks. Yeah. But I guess that didn't make it into the motto because it doesn't start with a P. Hey, how about pile of bricks? How about pluck, perseverance, and pile of bricks? Uh, That would have been more accurate, yes. But I don't think it sounds quite, quite as good. Well, today we'd like to tell you about the stories of three Apex citizens who exemplified the spirit of our town's original motto. Citizens who use their pluck and perseverance to overcome huge obstacles and accomplish great dreams. One is an author, one is a rocket scientist, and one is an Emmy-winning television journalist. Well, let's start with the author. That's, of course, Julia Montgomery Street. Julia was born in Concord, North Carolina, that's out there near Charlotte, in 1898. Her father, Dr. Samuel Lewis Montgomery, was a physician there. But when Julia was 18 months old, her family came to Apex to visit relatives just for a weekend visit. And then tragedy struck. While they were in Apex, her father suddenly died, unexpectedly. Her mother, of course, was distraught. And then she had to make a difficult decision. She decided she could not take care of her baby, Julia, because she already had two other children. And now, with her husband dead, she needed to find a way to make a living. So, Julia's mother left her baby, that's Julia, with relatives in Apex. The Norris sisters, Maud and Maybell. And as we pointed out in a previous podcast, Toby and I actually knew Maud and Maybell when they were much older. Julia's mother, meanwhile, moved from Concord to Cary. She opened a boarding house there. Now, the Norris House was a three-story Gothic mansion right in the heart of downtown Apex. It looked something like from a horror movie or maybe The Addams Family. Yes. And the Norris sisters, Maud and Maybell, were, let's just say, strict, eccentric, and austere quite a bit like the house. Julia spent her childhood in that house, and I mean that literally. She wasn't really allowed to to get out very much. She always held the hope that her mother would would come and, you know, and take her back. 
She, like any child, she wanted to be with her mother and her sisters, but sadly, it never happened. And then one day, tragedy struck again. When Julia was 16 years old, her mother died. So, Toby, imagine the following scenario. You grow up without your father and without your mother. Mm -hmm. You're raised by aunts who are so strict, they won't even let you go play with your friends the way other children do. So what would you think happens? Well, in Julia's case, books became her closest friend. And despite hardships, perhaps because of them, you have dreams. You want not just to read books, you want to write them. Yeah. And that's a bold thing for anyone to say at any time, but especially it's bold for you because you're a girl. And this is a hundred years ago. So, Toby, I put this question to you. What would you say are the most likely odds? A, Julia will grow up to be just like her old maid aunts and spend the rest of her life as a hermit in that big old house. B, she will lash out against her aunts and become a teenage axe murderer. C, she will become one of America's most beloved authors of children's stories. Well, let me see. I like B. A teenage axe murderer would certainly make this podcast a lot more interesting. <laughs> yeah, it would, but fortunately, the correct answer is C. Uh, after graduating from Apex High School in 1916, Julia Montgomery did something highly unusual for women in those days. Not only did she go to college, she went on to graduate school. While she was in grad school at UNC Chapel Hill, she was studying child psychology. I, I can't imagine why, given her childhood. <laughs> Julia took a writing course. Her classmates included, are you ready? Yeah. Thomas Wolfe and Paul Green. Well, now, Thomas Wolfe was a uh, person who went on to become North Carolina's most famous author. He still is, I think. And he wrote a number of novels, including Look, Homeward Angel and You Can't Go Home Again. Paul Green, on the other hand, became North Carolina's most famous playwright. He wrote The Lost Colony. Back when we were kids, Warren, you'll remember, uh, we and every other family we knew made a trip to the Outer Banks to see that play. And what I remember, brother, is we spent a lot of time swatting mosquitoes. <laughs> Yeah. It was an outdoor theater there, and uh, there were a lot of mosquitoes. One, one thing that I, I learned later is, did, did you know that that's how Andy Griffith got his start in show business? Ah. He, as a college student, UNC Chapel Hill, he was a drama major, and he got one of the leading roles in that play. Okay. Well, but let's get back to Julia. Okay. After college, Julia Montgomery married Dr. Claudius Augustus Street a pediatrician. They moved over to Winston-Salem, where they raised two children. Now, Julia wanted to write novels, but as a mother and doctor's wife, there wasn't enough time. Because in those days, medical clinics were often held in doctors' homes, and the wives served as clinic managers. It was a 24-7 job. In fact, Warren, just a couple of houses down from where we grew up on Hunter Street, Dr. Hart had a similar kind of arrangement. And Mrs. Hart was her clinic man, was his clinic manager. She worked right alongside him. That's right. 
So Julia did what she could. She wrote some short pieces of poetry, children's stories, journal articles, and radio plays. And then after the children grew up, she was finally able to live her dream. She published her first novel at 57 years of age, and then she continued to publish one novel after another, mostly juvenile fiction, until her death in 1993. In all, she published seven novels, and during that era, she became known as one of America's most beloved authors of children's stories. In fact, um, the American Association of University Women gave an annual award for Best Juvenile Fiction in the United States. It's really sort of a Pulitzer Prize for children's books. Well, our Apex's own Julia Montgomery Street won that award not once, not twice, but three times. Wow. Yeah. Well, so when we think of virtues of pluck and perseverance and what you can accomplish if you have those virtues, one of the Apex people we hope everybody will always remember that person is Julia Montgomery Street. And if you get a chance, we encourage you to check out her books. You can get them, of course, from the Eva Perry Library. You can also uh, find them online from various used bookstores. Her books have great titles, uh, and they cover the whole range of the geography of the state and the various uh, ethnicities of the state. Books, her books are titled Fiddler's Fancy, Moccasin Tracks, Drover's Gold, Dulce's Whale, North Carolina Parade, Candle Love Feast, and a book of ghost stories called Judicola's, I hope I pronounced that right, Judicola's Handprint. Wow. Well, that's interesting. But let's move on, uh, Warren, to the next amazing person to grow up in Apex. This person was a rocket scientist named Euclid Holloman. Imagine that. A guy named Euclid, named for that geometry guy back in the... Euclidean uh, geometry, that's right. A contemporary of, um, what, Plato, Socrates, <laughs> but, but, all that. And, and where did they ever come... I've never met anybody named Euclid before. Yeah, uh, neither have I. Especially in old Apex. I'm just... That's right, that's right. <laughs> well, so imagine the following. A boy grows up with two dreams. One is to go to college... And the second is to fly airplanes. But there's a serious obstacle in the way. Really? What obstacle? Well, actually, several. First, let's start with the fact that he grows up in the middle of the Great Depression. Well, okay. Yeah, that's an obstacle. His father dies when he's only four years old. Yeah, okay. That's an obstacle. He and his siblings are raised by a single mother who, in addition to losing her husband, has lost two other children. Mm. Another obstacle. Yep. And then, after graduating from Apex High School, class of 1938, he doesn't have any money to go to college. So he takes a job as a welder over in Raleigh. Which, as far as I know, welding isn't generally considered a part of the career path toward becoming a rocket scientist. No, probably not. Uh, <laughs> what would you say the odds are that a young man such as this would eventually become an airplane pilot and then go even further and higher and faster than that. So, based on what we've said so far, I think we'd have to agree that his odds aren't very good. But you and I know the rest of the story. We know that somehow, against all these odds, Euclid 
Hollum and became one of Apex's amazing success stories. While working as a welder, Euclid developed a very unusual hobby. He made and flew airplanes. I don't mean he ordered a kit and put it together. He designed them, he built them, he flew them all by himself. These Now, these weren't big jets or anything. These were small model airplanes. But he did the whole thing himself. Then in 1941, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. And Euclid immediately enlisted in the Navy as an aviation cadet. He was volunteering for one of the most dangerous jobs on the planet, and yet at the same time, he felt elated. He called this the high point in his life because now he could fulfill one of his dreams, flying airplanes. And for the next few years, he flew combat missions in the South Pacific. Unlike so many pilots who did this service, he, he survived. Right. And after the war, thanks to the GI Bill, he was able to fulfill his other dream. He attended college and then went on to graduate school. Yeah, have you seen the movie The Right Stuff? Over at Edwards Air Force Base in California's Mojave Desert, legendary test pilots like Chuck Yeager and Neil Armstrong collaborated with aeronautical engineers to design jets, and then later, rockets that would go further and higher and faster. In 1949, Euclid became one of those aeronautical engineers. And over the next quarter century, he would help to solve one of the most challenging problems of upper atmospheric and space travel. That is, how to control a flying vehicle in an airless environment. So, I grew up in Apex, of course, but I've lived the last few decades in Houston, Houston, Texas. And like so many people there, uh, I just happened to be friends with a former astronaut because they're all around. My friend's name is David Hilmers. David flew four missions. He logged nearly 500 hours in space. He had an amazing career. I told him about my father's high school classmate and cousin, uh, Euclid Holloman. And I said, could you kind of tell me what his contribution to the space program was? And I wrote down his exact words. Here they are. In flights in the high reaches of the atmosphere of outer or, or in outer space, rudders, like you have on airplanes, are ineffective. So you control the vehicle with these small rockets. There are three axes, pitch, yaw, and roll. Euclid's great contribution developed in the 50s and perfected around 1960 was to design a control stick that was different than the conventional airplane pilot stick, which only controls pitch and roll. The three-axis flight control stick that Euclid designed has the ability to control all three axes with a single stick. I mean, with with one hand, you can control all three. So up, down, right, left, Mm -hmm. all of that. You're rolling side to side. Rolling around, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And so David said, quote, this is very important in spaceflight when the pilot's trying to control all three axes at once while approaching another vehicle or when docking with the space station, for example. This type of controller that Euclid developed has been used ever since, you know, ever since the first spaceflight in every manned spacecraft. 
And I, when he told me that, I just said, wow. <laughs> so remember all those obstacles I mentioned earlier? The Great Depression, death of his father, yeah. raised by a single mother, not having enough money to go to college. How is it that an apex boy could overcome all of these obstacles and become a key factor in the success of the NASA space program? Now, NASA would say that Euclid Holloman had the right stuff. But what exactly is the right stuff, Warren? Well, if you grew up in Apex, you know. It's <laughs> pluck and perseverance. That's, That's right. the right stuff. <laughs> and if I may, this is not about space travel, but I would like to add a footnote about Euclid's character and personality. I think one of the most amazing things about him was his modesty. So as I mentioned earlier, our dad attended Apex High School with Euclid, and they were cousins. But our dad, to my memory, never talked about Euclid's accomplishments, and nor did any of the other people of that generation who grew up with him. Yeah. Um, we never heard about that growing up. And I've always wondered why. I mean, I think I'd ask his wife after he died. I, I got to know her. She said, well, in part, it's because some of the work he did was classified, obviously, the details. But the general importance of what he was doing, I mean, working with Chuck Yeager and Neil Armstrong and, the, and you know, the space program, surely that could have been known if Euclid had chosen to talk about it with people here. But he didn't. The best I can tell, his old Apex High School friends knew that he had some type of job in government in jobs involved something with aeronautics, but they had no idea that he designed the flight controller that sent a rocket to the moon and enabled spacecraft to dock with the space station. I remember, I'll never forget one time I was talking with Ms. Annie Ruth Maynard, and it was on a totally different subject. She was talking about how good the Apex High School boys basketball team was back when she was in school with my dad and Euclid back in the late 1930s. So as we all knew, that was the era of the legendary Jim and Joe Mills. Oh, they, yeah. they went on to become North Carolina Sports Hall of Famers. And Ms. Maynard, to my surprise, didn't even mention the Mills brothers in this particular conversation. She said, quote, we were a great team. We had Euclid Holloman playing forward. He was really good. And they went on to come in second in the state that year. So I just find it fascinating that what Ms. Maynard remembered about Euclid was how good an athlete he was. She never even mentioned that he sent a rocket to the moon. And I, I think it's because she literally didn't know that. He had kept that to himself. He was just a, a modest guy. And Euclid was also generous. Yeah. If you go into Apex United Methodist Church, that's the Methodist church that's across the railroad tracks from the downtown area. And if you look, in, go inside into the sanctuary and look at the stained glass windows, you'll see that there's a window there that Euclid and his siblings donated to honor their mother. Their mother's name was Florence Holloman. And there it is, the window with her name under it. She was the single mom who raised her children all alone in the midst of the Great Depression. And I remember talking with a lot of the older people in the church, and they'd say that even though he was doing whatever he was doing out west with aeronautics, he would come back often to visit his mom. 
that made an impression. Yeah. And the church also named a prayer circle in his mother's honor, the Florence Holloman Circle. When our Aunt Jewel died some many years ago, and then yeah. later our mother, the circle was there at the wake, and then again at the funeral and afterwards to provide food and support. They've been doing this for decades. It's one of those things that makes Apex a kinder and gentler community. Agree. So we've talked about Apex's amazing author and Apex's amazing rocket scientist. Now we like to tell you about Apex's amazing television journalist. His name is Byron Pitts. Perhaps you have watched Byron Pitts on TV when he was serving as a chief national correspondent for CBS Evening News. Byron reported extensively from Iraq and Afghanistan. He had the distinction of having interviewed every recent American president. He won several National Emmy Awards, one of which was for his coverage of the 9-11 terrorist attacks. And for many years, he was a correspondent for CBS's 60 Minutes, the program often referred to as the most successful show in the history of television. And these days, you can see Byron on ABC. He's the co-anchor of ABC Nightline. As you'll recall from years ago, uh, this is the this is the award-winning news show. It was made famous by Ted Koppel. So that's who Byron Pitts is. But do you know where he came from? Yeah. Well, let me I read do. this passage from his book, his autobiography, Step Out on Nothing. He writes... As a boy, I spent most of my summers in Apex, North Carolina. Grandma's home address said Apex, but she lived in the community of Friendship, a spit of a town with two churches and not a single traffic light. Mm -hmm. The Friendship of my youth was a place of dirt roads, open, overgrown fields, and a weekend barbecue after the local adult league baseball game. Tobacco was still king. Eventually, though, the tobacco fields would be replaced by subdivisions, and so that today the sweat-stained overalls of tobacco growers and vegetable farmers have been replaced by salivating developers in khaki pants <laughs> and blue blazers. Yeah. In the 1960s, my grandmother owned about 30 acres of wooded property. My earliest memories include the outhouse and a deep well with one single metal bucket, a chain, and a hook. It was almost too heavy for me to carry. In other words, by the time he, he as a little boy carried that bucket from the well to the house, about only half the water would still be in the bucket. And I remember doing that a few times at my relatives' houses. Most of the water is going to wind up on the ground, you hope, because otherwise it's going to wind up on your pants leg. Byron was raised by a single mom in Baltimore but he spent his summers with his grandmother here in Apex. Her name was Roberta May Walden. If you grew up in old Apex, chances are you were friends with Roberta May Walden. When you read Byron's autobiography, you can't help but be struck by the way he managed to overcome so many obstacles on the way to becoming a successful journalist. So, let's yeah. see. First obstacle, Warren, I believe it was poverty. As you just heard, Byron grew up in a place the, where there was no indoor plumbing. Right. Obstacle number two, I would say, is segregation. In his book, Byron tells the story of being a seven-year-old child who, at that young age, put his grandmother's life literally in danger. 
when he, he naively walked into a white-only store here in Apex. This was the 1960s. Black people then were supposed to, quote, stay in their place. Mm. And bad things happened to those who crossed the line. So segregation was an obstacle. It made it hard for black boys and girls to accomplish their dreams. Yes. And there were some other obstacles of a more personal nature. Byron Pitts had a learning disability. In fact, he did not read until he was 12 years old. He was illiterate until he was nearly a teenager. And on top of that, he had a stuttering problem. Now, stuttering would be a challenge for anyone, but especially for someone whose dream is to become a future television journalist. Wow, yes. And when Byron was in college, struggling with dyslexia and with his stuttering, he went to a professor to get some advice and to share with the professor his dream about becoming a journalist. Yeah. And the professor, when he heard of Byron's interest in journalism, said to him basically, he should just give up that dream. The only reason that Byron made it to college, he said, was because he got there on a football scholarship. The professor then suggested that Byron drop out of college and find a job more suitable for his IQ. Like welding, maybe, or something like that. Who knows? Yeah. Well, time passed, 20 years, in fact, and you know what happened? Byron went back to his alma mater, but this time it was to give the commencement address. (laughs) And while he was giving the address, he told that story. And would you know it? The professor was still sitting in the audience. I don't think he shared the professor's name. Right. He had the, he had the, I I would have been tempted to share his name, but Byron held back on that. But I'm hoping the professor knew who he was talking about. So as we've said, Byron faced all these obstacles, poverty, segregation, two different disabilities. Any one of these would have been a major challenge for most of us. But to overcome all four, Toby, what would you say are the odds he could overcome all four. Well, it's hard to imagine. Yeah. Byron attributes his success to his grandmother's faith and love, as well as his own mother's toughness and tenacity. And if you read the book or you knew her, you, you knew that she was capable of being tough and tenacious. Yes. But if you read his book, you'll see that there was another key to success, and that was his own pluck and perseverance. Time and again, He refused to quit, even when guidance counselors and professors advised him to do so. Well, that's it. We hope you've enjoyed hearing about three of Apex's most amazing citizens. And just to underscore how amazing they were and how amazing Apex is, we remind you, this is important, they didn't grow up in the apex of the 21st century, the peak of good living, with all our great schools and our bustling economy. No, this was the apex of the early and middle 20th century. The three people we featured in this episode were born at a time when Apex was a very small town, just a mile square, with the train depot right in the center. Yep. Just a few hundred people when Julia Montgomery Street and then later Euclid Holloman were born, and not a whole lot bigger by the time Byron Pitts came along. In 1960, for example, the population of Apex was just over a thousand people. The Apex of the 20th century wasn't just small, it was also poor. 
Apex was out in the boondocks, as far as Raleigh and Durham were concerned. It was not a place where children would grow up aspiring to go to college. We often think of small towns, you know, Toby, as these sleepy places where nothing ever happens. But there's another narrative that I think kind of takes over here about small towns. And this is what's often called the can-do spirit of small-town America. Yes. Yeah. And this podcast has been about that can-do spirit. The story of Apex is the story of a small southern town, despite its shortcomings, that placed a high value on virtues, and especially the virtues of pluck, perseverance, and a can-do spirit. These virtues helped Julia Montgomery Street, Euclid Holloman, and Byron Pitts overcome all kinds of adversity and then go on to shape the history of our country and the world.